Good morning, I'm Scott Hansen, and I am not Kevin Whitfield. Um, so I am a member of the Parish Council, and I'm also um, an attorney in town. I do primarily criminal defense work for those of you who um, might need my help. Um, no. anyway. <laughs> Sorry, that was not supposed to happen. Um, anyway, so what I'd like to do first is just um, let's bow our heads because I need prayer, and then you probably need it too. So we'll pray, and then we'll get into this Jonah book. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you um, are here among us now. I thank you, God, for your word. I thank you for your people. I pray, Father, that you who love words so much would give me the right words to speak this morning, that, Father, you would open ears to hear the right thing, that, God, your spirit would move within us and among us and be here with us today. I thank you, God, for the ability to come before your people and to preach your word. In your name, amen. So this is Jonah chapter 4. I want to kind of recap. Before I do that, I'm going to tell you a brief story and kind of leave you hanging, and then we're going to wrap it all up at the end. So this is, when I was about five or six years old, I um, had a neighbor across the street. She was Danish. She was very Scandinavian. Um, and she was a swimmer. She had a wonderful pool, and we would oftentimes go to that pool and just sort of like live and be there. It was awesome. It was great. Except when I was five, I didn't know how to swim. And I remember distinctly one sunny afternoon sitting on the edge of the, the diving board with all the admonitions from everyone saying, don't fall in. So I'm sitting on this diving board, and there's a bee that's flying around my head. And as this bee is flying around my head, it's getting closer and closer till I thought the only option I had left was going in the pool. Most diving boards are on the deep end, at least in my experience. And I went down like a rock. And I remember being enveloped by the water and sinking. I'm going to leave you there. I'm going to leave you at my sinking. So... Jonah chapter 4 is a great, it's a great chapter. To recap, Jonah basically has not wanted to be here. Jonah didn't want to come. In fact, if I were to write a support letter as Jonah, it would probably go something like this. To my partners in ministry... God has called me, I'm really, really sure, to go to Nineveh. In fact, I didn't want to go. And when he called me, I went, not really wanting to go. And I actually didn't really go. I went the opposite direction that God called me to go. That's how much I wanted to serve. When I went the wrong way, God stopped me. He put me in the belly of a fish and called me to this town. And when I went to that town, I had no love for these people. I didn't want to be with these people. In fact, I wanted to see their destruction. They're not my people group, God. So when I went and I finally obeyed, I called condemnation on their heads. I called for repentance because God was going to destroy this people. 
And I was okay with that to my, minister, my ministry partners. And then, imagine this, God blessed my ministry. Not only did he save one or two people, he saved an entire city, 120,000 people. There's bang for your buck if you, if you, if you support me. 120,000 people repented. They came to the Lord. And now I'm angry. Why has he done this? Why have he, has he blessed my ministry? I'm not a little angry. I'm so angry. I'm mad at God. And I am not happy. I'm not leaving my mission field because I want to see destruction come to this people. Wow, isn't that a great, you know, signed Jonah, give me your money. Um, what a powerful view from a man who was a prophet of Israel, but called to Nineveh, a people who are not his people, a people who are not God's people in his mind. So let's think about why is Jonah angry. To start with, Jonah's angry because as a prophet, you have this notion that what you say is going to happen, right? That's one of the measures of a prophet. 100% accuracy all the time. Except the condemnation that he brought down on the head of Nineveh was conditional. The word of the Lord said, if you don't repent, I will destroy you. They repented. God didn't destroy them. He held back his condemnation. I think Jonah wanted to see them fail. I think Jonah wanted to see brimstone and fire. He wanted to see the destruction of Nineveh. Now, why would he want to see the destruction of Nineveh? Well, God is now blessing non-Jews. The Ninevites were not Jewish. They were Gentiles. They were Assyrians. They were not God's chosen people that Jonah thought he was speaking to. So now, if God is extending grace and mercy to others who are not Jews, who are not Israel per se, what does that do to this whole notion of this lifetime of believing that you are a select group of people whom God has specially set apart? And now he's expending, expounding, giving grace to others? What about us? What about Israel? Are we losing our place of prominence, our specialness in the world? This is the enemy. This is like Al-Qaeda, preaching to Al-Qaeda, and them saying, you're right, we're wrong. We're sorry. Forgive us. We've done wrong. Jonah wanted to see that righteous judgment come down upon him because I think there's something that's deep inside of us all that wants to see someone else fail. We delight in the failure of others because it makes us feel okay with our own mediocrity. We want to see those people who do excel sometimes trip and fall. It's a part of who you are. It's a part of being human. 
I think also there was fear. Just a genuine fear that God is changing things up. And I don't know and he doesn't know what that means for him or for Israel. Jonah had a God knowledge. He knew. He knew the Sunday school answers. When God does not destroy Nineveh, what does he say? He says, well, this is who you are. You show mercy and you love people. Right? That's what he says. And now he's upset about it. So why is it that Jonah had this knowledge of God, but he didn't have the ways of God down? He was halfway there. He had his head, but he didn't have his heart. I think part of the problem that Jonah had was he exhibited or lacked imagination. He wasn't able to see himself in the story of God. If I were to give this talk a title, I'd call it, Whose Story Is It Anyway? If we look like Jonah through Jonah's eyes, we only see Jonah's perspective. We align ourselves with that point of view. But there's another grander point of view here. If we look at our actors, we've got the city of Nineveh, we've got Jonah, and we've got God. Who's the star of this show? Who's the headliner? It's not Jonah. It's God. God is the the center. God is the focus. It's God doing the primary acting of demonstrating grace and love and restoration for all of his people. So, in preparation for this, I read part of this book by Eugene Peterson, the author of the the message, and he talks about two very important aspects or parts of the way we approach life, living scripture. And he talks about mental, these two mental operations, imagination and explanation. He says they're designed to work in tandem. When the gospel is given robust and healthy expression, the two work in graceful synchronicity. Explanation pins down things so that we can handle and use them obey and teach, help and guide. Imagination opens things up so we can grow into maturity. Worship and adore, exclaim and honor, follow and trust. Explanation restricts, defines, holds down. Imagination expands and lets loose. Explanation keeps our feet on the ground. Imagination lifts our heads into the clouds. Explanation puts us in harness. Imagination catapults us into mystery. Do you love your significant other with explanation or with imagination? Do you, when you see that beloved thing or person, do you reduce them to the sum of their parts? You have a lovely arm. Your hair follicles look lovely today. No, you go with words of imagination, words of wholeness, words that point you up, elevation. I'm not sitting here saying that propositional truths 
are not useful or beneficial or that doctrine doesn't have a place. But if all you have is doctrine without love, then you have coldness and you have no contentment. Your soul yearns for relationship. And that relationship doesn't come from propositional truths. It comes from Jesus Christ. It comes from God the Father. It comes from the Holy Spirit indwelling, working with you, and creating this beautiful, beautiful synchronicity of action and belief. If you do not love, I do not think you believe, truly. So the problem we have in part in our current age is that we are children. We are the children of rationalism. We are children of the Enlightenment. We are the byproducts of four or five hundred years of reductionism. So when you look and think about this reductionism, what does that mean? Well, it's taking something that's beautiful and just making it simple. It's about the bottom line, right? So what is it that, what's our greatest sort of American um, offering to the world right now? It's, I think, the internet, right? And what does the internet do? It has the capacity to uh, point us to great truths. It also has the capacity to debase us into mere consumers like chickens at the, the, at the chicken house that's eating 24-7 with the lights on all the time. You know, Amazon gives us the great capacity to buy without a break. Not only that, it takes something good and holy like sexuality and perverts it and reduces it to mere photographs, pornography, that just fill us with the mere representation of the act without any of the responsibility or humility that comes with truly loving another person and doing so physically. It's a lie. So we become consumers of things. We become consumers of pornography, sex. We become mere consumers when this thing is called to elevate us doesn't elevate us. So in order to save ourselves, which we can't do, but in order to advance or grow in faith, I believe we need to ask for a baptism of our imaginations. C.S. Lewis, when he wrote, or pardon me, read George MacDonald's Fantastes, he said, my, my imagination was baptized. It was a story of a young man who goes to sleep in a room and when he wakes up, he sees there's moss that's growing into and onto his bedroom, onto his, um, his, his dresser, and like a door opens up into a whole other world, which he then goes on a journey into and meets all kinds of fanciful and wild and interesting creatures and places. George MacDonald understood C.S. Lewis understands, and I think God himself knows, that we are people inherently of stories. Stories are what inspire us, they comfort us, they fill us with hope, they give us courage, 
And he gives us a story as well. It's his story. So Jonah, I think, ultimately, he leaves us hanging. If you look at the story itself, there's no Hollywood ending. Jonah doesn't find a girl, and they all, you know, go off together happily. Jonah leaves you with this longing in your stomach, in your gut, to know what's the next chapter? What happens next? What does Jonah do? Does he come to a place of resolution? Does he come to peace with God? God's provided all these things, and then he's taken them away. That's God simply saying, guess what? Remember me? I'm God. This is the same God who defines himself by himself and says, I am. Because there's nothing else that can equal him. He has to define himself by himself. I am Scott of Scott. No, I'm the son of Ken and Lil. This is God. God defines himself by himself. He's basically telling Jonah and the world, I am who I am. I have to hide you in the cleft because if you see me in full face, you will die because you can't take my glory. That's the God we serve. That's the God whose story I want to be a part of. And what's his representative? Who's his representative? His representative the second or third figure, depending on how you do your math, of the Godhead, Jesus Christ himself, looks to and says in Matthew, let me get there, in Matthew 12, think about this. Think about the story, the grand story of God. What is this grand story of God? Behold, my servant whom I have chosen, my beloved with whom my soul is well pleased. I will put my spirit upon him, and he will proclaim justice to the Gentiles. He will not quarrel or cry aloud, nor will anyone hear his voice in the streets. A bruised reed he will not break, and a smoldering wick he will not quench, until he brings justice to victory, and in his name the Gentiles will hope. That's from Isaiah. That's Jesus quoting Isaiah. And then he goes on to say, you, i.e. Pharisees, Sadducees, you grumbling heads. Then some of the scribes and Pharisees answered him saying, teacher, we wish to see a sign from you. Prove it. I've got my microscope out. Prove it. But he answered them, an evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. The men of Nineveh, those Gentile pigs, will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it, for they repented at the preaching of Jonah. And behold, something greater than Jonah is here. The man done come to town. So one of the problems that Jonah had was this problem with Israel. Israel was in a place where they had gotten fat and they had gotten bold and they had basically forgotten God. They do not repent. And so they go into captivity, into the Babylonian captivity for roughly 70 years or so. God's got to punish them, discipline them. 
because of their unwillingness to acknowledge this truth, this story about God's greater good for the greater world. Israel was called and set apart because God called them and set them apart. It was God's choice. And yet they did not grow into the promise that he had given them to grow into. And so he disciplined them. He allowed them to have their selfishness. He allowed them to have their way. And their way ended in their own destruction. Because again, after they come back, back into the promised land, he sends his son. And they again don't get the message. They don't see the greater story. They don't see the greater story of redemption. They don't see the greater story of restoration. They don't see the greater story of God loving the entire world that he created and said was good. We all have to spend our time in the belly of the fish because we all have to die. So this story is a micro story and it's a macro story. Macro story is God's grand story of nations and how nations need to come and ultimately submit to him. Who are willing to die, who are willing to see that grand story of God's redemption of the world. It's also micro in that you and I are each called to die to our own selves each and every day so that we can then be a part of this grand story. Peterson talked about how in some areas of Eastern Europe, in some churches, you have to go up through a wooden belly of a whale, literally a, a, like a picture of a fish, and you actually walk through the belly of the fish, so you're kind of standing and speaking outside of, I guess, the fish's mouth. And he loved that image because it was such a, a beautiful reminder that we all have to die to ourselves in order to live and eat this word. So for me, this is probably the most difficult thing to do. To put aside my preconceptions, my presuppositions, my notions of the way the world ought to be, even my sense of justice, whatever that is, and say that God's plan, God's story is the story that I want to align myself with. And that's the truth that I want to hold on to. So to bring this back, when I was in that pool sinking to the bottom, I remember a hand grabbing me, pulling me out of the water. And it was our Danish neighbor, Vivi, Vivi Lu. And after that, after I got pulled out of the water, she said, we need to spend some time together. You need to learn how to swim. And I also remember in the low end, shallow end of the pool, me resting on her arms, learning how to kick, 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 so I could move the water. Move your hands, move your hands. So I knew that if I got in the water again, I wasn't just going to go right down to the bottom. But it took some time. It took 
walking and working with her so I could learn how to swim. And we all need to learn how to swim. And if you do learn how to swim, you're not going to drown. So you've got to decide whose story is it and what's your role in that story. Is it yours or is it his? In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit.